by turning to the Psalms. We're going to look at the subject of music again, and we'll read the Psalms that we've always started with in these previous messages. Psalm 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. And then Psalm 150. (coughs) Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, or it can be translated hallelujah. Well, this is the fifth time, and I thought it was going to be the final time that I spoke on the subject of music, but uh, the message got a little bit too long to handle in one time. I think it would have taken probably about 50 minutes, and I don't want to keep you here that long. I know you have children that need to get to bed, so I think I'll try to break it into two 25-minute or something like that sections. Um, We've briefly looked at the origin of music, which is in God himself. And therefore, since God is musical, his creation is. He's made the creation that way, Uh, especially mankind made in his image. Now, we said that both the subhuman and superhuman, the, the the creation lower than us, the creation higher than us, the angels are musical, but primarily we're thinking of music in relationship to mankind. And we are musical because we're made in the image of God. We then looked at scriptural ways of using music, that is, ways that please God. After that, we looked at ways of using music that displease God. And then the last time we looked at the controversy concerning the use of instruments and hymns in worship. So this time, and now next time, I want to look at some of the myriad of ways that God has used music in and through the church. The ways that God has used music in and through the church. But before we go into that, uh, I want to point out that in Old Testament Israel, the place that was the most noted for music was the temple. Uh, it pulsated with music. Uh, we're going to look at a few scriptures, but I thought I might just make reference here when we're talking about the instruments that were used. Uh, a lot of them were mentioned here in this psalm. It talks about praising God in his sanctuary, and it talks about a lot of the instruments that would have been used. 
basically there were three types, the wood instruments, or the, I mean the wind instruments, the string instruments, and the percussion instruments. The wind instruments would be like the flute or the pipe or the trumpets and horns. The trumpets and horns were used by the priests. The other instruments were used by certain families of the Levites. They were set aside to play the instruments. Um, of course, a wind instrument is, uh, the sound is made by blowing air through uh, the, the instrument. Some versions of the Bible make mention of an organ. I think King James does. Uh, that is uh, just kind of a general term in which musical sounds are produced by air flowing through pipes or tubes. We should definitely not think of some kind of a pipe organ. Those things weren't around for centuries uh, after the time of, of the, the temple in the Old Testament. So that's the wind instruments. And then you have the string instruments. That would be the harp and the lyre. The lyre is some kind, sometimes called a lute. And the harp and the lyre were very much alike, except that the lyre included a resonating body while the harp was a simple frame with only strings attached. And then you have the percussion instruments. Most often mentioned are the cymbals, and they came in various sizes. Then there was the tambourine, which is sometimes translated the timbrel. And there rarely there's mentioned something like castanets. The, this is kind of interesting. I don't know, quite know what to make of it. I think some people would try to make a big deal out of this. I, I don't want to do that, but it is significant in some way that the simplest and most ancient percussion instrument, which is the drum, is absent from all biblical references uh, as far as instruments. So those are some of the instruments that were concerned. Now, like I said, there was... Uh, certain families of the Levites that were set apart as singers and musicians. And I want to look at a few verses related to that. Uh, remember, we're talking about a place where the most music was in ancient Israel, and it was in the temple. So uh, First Corinthians, uh, First Chronicles, I'm sorry, First Chronicles chapter 9. <clears throat> just going to cut right into a section here, but it, it'll get the point across. First Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 33. <clears throat> now these are the singers, heads of fathers' households of the Levites, who lived in the chambers of the temple, free from all other service, for they were engaged in their work day and night. Now, what if they were singers and they were engaged in their work day and night, what were they doing? They were singing day and night, this, these particular families of the Levites. First uh, Chronicles 23. <coughs> We looked at this, I believe, before. But anyway, in verse 3, we're, uh, just to know we're talking about the Levites, and the Levites were numbered from 30 years old and upward. So we're talking about the Levites. And then it tells different uh, uh, assignments 
that various families or groups of the Levites had. Um, some were, uh, worked in the house and some were gatekeepers. But if you look in verse 5, um, and 4,000 were gatekeepers and 4,000 were praising the Lord with instruments which David made for giving praise. So we have 4,000 of this uh, of the Levites set aside to use instruments for praising the Lord. So that's the type of thing uh, you had going on in the temple, singing, instruments used to praise the Lord. I mean, of course, there was all kinds of other things going on in the temple, the sacrifices and things, but there was music in the temple. And... Just as one example of what we're talking about, at the dedication of the temple, Second Chronicles, <clears throat> chapter 5, and verse 11. This is at the dedication of the temple, after Solomon had built it, David laid the plans and got all things ready and he kind of he's the one that pretty much set the tone for the music in the temple he designed the instruments and said how things were to be done Solomon <coughs> set it up and so this is the dedication of the temple and when the priests came forth from the holy place for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to division and all the Lev Levitical singers uh, Asaph and Heman and Jadutha and their sons and kinsmen clothed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres standing east of the altar and with them 120 priests blowing the trumpets. Remember I said the priests were in charge of the, the trumpets uh, and the horns. Um, so blowing trumpets in unison when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice accompanied by the trumpets and cymbals and the instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting, then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So here you have at the dedication uh, quite a musical array um, going on at that time. Well, <clears throat> why am I going into all this? The temple was the holiest place on earth, and it was to have music day and night. And we are taught in the New Testament that the Old Testament earthly temple symbolized heaven itself. The temple on earth was a copy and shadow of heavenly things. You can find that in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 2 and 5 and other places in Hebrews. So the temple on earth was a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So the point I want to make is that the place above all others that represented heaven in the Old Testament times, the temple, was filled with with music day and night. So it shouldn't be surprising if we find music, lots of music, in heaven, the true tabernacle of God. 
and we could look up some verses in the book of Revelation that shows that to be the case. But my question is, where is God's temple music now? That Old Testament temple has been destroyed. There, that one in Jerusalem. There's heaven, but we're not there yet. So where is God's temple music now? Well, the fact is we Christians are the temple of God. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16 And corporately and collectively, we, that is the church, not just our little group, but the church, uh, are being fitted together into a holy temple in the Lord in which you also are being built together into a holy dwelling of God in the Spirit. So... It shouldn't surprise us that this present manifestation of the temple is filled with music. I'm talking about the church. We are to be singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. So the church is filled with music, God's people. Let me present then, and this is what I want to spend the uh, rest of the time on and the next time also. Let me present to you some of the myriad of ways that God has and is using music day and night in his present temple here on earth, that is the church. I have to say that what I'm going to give you is somewhat scattered. It's not really chronological. I'm going to kind of be jumping around time-wise. Uh, and also, there's so much to choose from. These are just a few of what would literally be millions of examples. In fact, most of them aren't even in the church history books. They go on all the time, how God uses music. Uh, but they are known to God. So, let's go into this then the ways that God uses music in his present temple that is the church of God uh, let me start with a man named Thomas Ken he's the author of what's called the doxology um, praise God from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below praise him above ye heavenly hosts praise father son and Holy Ghost. Well, this is something that Thomas Ken said. He said, Be sure and sing early in the morning and in the night season. He says that's important. And really, the church has been doing that since its inception. Singing day and night, just like those Levitical priests were supposed to do in the temple. Um, if you even, I thought of this, even that doxology is being sung day and night. If you look around the world, that, that, that's sung it's probably all, every day. All the churches in the world, I'm sure it's sung every day. 
praise God from whom all blessings flow. Well, around the world, the music from the temple, the church, goes forth. Let me uh, take you back to the time of the early church after the closing of the uh, New Testament. But we have this account. Uh, a, a man named uh, Pliny the Younger was reporting to the emperor Trajan of the activities of the Christians, the early Christians. This would be in A.D. 110. And what he said about them, the first thing that he said about them is um, they are accustomed to meet on a fixed day before daylight to sing a hymn of praise to Christ as God. He went on and said some other things. But the first thing he said is they're accustomed to meeting on a fixed day before daylight to sing a, pray, a hymn of praise to Christ as God. Why before daybreak? Well, that was probably of necessity because most of the church were slaves and they, they couldn't meet any other time except before daybreak. Uh, here's another report, early report. This is from 125 A.D. And it's a Greek describing to his fellow pagans a typical Christian funeral. The Christians would ex uh, es escort the body with songs and thanksgiving as if they were setting out from one place to another nearby. So at their funerals, uh, the Christians were noted for sing uh, songs and thanksgivings. Uh, so that's from way back. But let me jump kind of forward here. The fact is God has mightily used Christians' music throughout the centuries. Fanny Crosby, her prayer was that her hymns would play a key role in the conversion of one million people. Many believe her target has already been passed and that the work of her songs is still far from over. Her remarkable ministry did not commence until age 40 four when she wrote her first hymn. After that she wrote some six to eight thousand hymns. Church historian Philip Schaff notes that not only were the great revivals of the Reformation, Pietism, Moravianism, and Methodism sung as well as preached, the leaders of each of these revivals were themselves hymnists. For instance, think of Zinzendorf, who was a key figure in the Moravian revival. And it was his hymns that influenced the Wesley brothers. In fact, if you remember, it was the singing of the Moravians on that ship in the middle of the ocean amongst the big storm that caused Wesley to realize he wasn't even converted. <clears throat> But anyway, here's Zinzendorf, what he had to say. Uh, he said it was his practice to sing a familiar hymn before the sermon. He'd sing it before the sermon. After it, however, if I did not find a song in the hymnal that I would like to have sung to emphasize the subject matter of my sermon to the audience 
and to offer to the Savior a prayer, I invented a new song of which I knew nothing before and which will be forgotten soon after it has served its purpose. He just made up a song for his sermon. He said, I probably wasn't a great song. It won't last very long, but that's what I did. Uh, so it fit in with what um, the message that I preached. Uh, so that was the Moravian, Zinzendorf. Uh, again, at the founding of the Salvation Army, that would be another group that's noted for its, its singing and music. Uh, its founder, William Booth, contributed to the movement's songs. D.L. Moody's enormous influence in Great Britain was inseparably linked with the introduction of gospel songs. Until then, especially in Scotland, anything but metrical versions of the psalms were banned in very many churches. I'm going to say a little bit more about Moody later, quite a bit of it, a bit more about Moody the next time. Uh, later on, there in England, uh, well, actually in Wales, in the 1904 revival in Wales, an Englishman asked if the Welsh revival would reach London. Evan Roberts replied with a smile, Can you sing? And uh, here's an interesting thing. One eyewitness to the singing of that revival there in Wales wrote this. Such marvelous singing, quite exemplar, exemplar, means off the cuff, uh, could only be created by supernatural power. And that power would be, of course, the Holy Spirit. And he said this, No choir, no conductor, no organ, just spontaneous, unctionized soul singing. That's what the Welsh revival was noted for. Uh, unctionized souls singing. Uh, R.W. Dale, in his Yale lectures on preaching, said, In nearly all great revivals of religion... The common people themselves have been inspired with a passion for singing. They have sung their creed. I like that. They sung their creed. It seems the freest and most natural way of declaring their triumphant belief in the great Christian truths. So the point we're making here is where God's moving in his temple, songs come forth, music comes forth. Uh, <clears throat> A.W. Tozer said, Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley were able to marry the harp of David to the epistles of Paul and give us singing doctrine. Isn't that good? Singing doctrine. A good hymn should be singing doctrine. Luther was inspired to commence hymn writing by two young martyrs singing praises to God while being burnt alive for their reformed faith. Coleridge thought that Luther's hymns accomplished as much for the Reformation as did his translation of the Bible into German. Now, I think that's an overstatement, but nevertheless, it shows uh, something of the effect that the hymn writing of Luther had. And you remember I said last time the Roman Catholic 
Jesuit monks said that Luther had done more done us more harm by his songs than by his sermons. Luther said this, we seek poets everywhere. Well, why does he want poets? To write the words to the songs that uh, he felt needed to be sung. Uh, We seek poets everywhere, wrote Luther, about the importance he placed upon obtaining suitable songs. And Luther said, next to the word of God, music's deserves the highest praise. So I want to give you an account of a man who combined the word of God to amazing music. Luther says, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. uh, praise." So here's an account of a man who put together the word of God and some very amazing music. In a small, in a small London house on Brook Street, a servant sighs with resign- resignation as he arranges a tray full of food he assumes will not be eaten. For more than a week, he has faithfully continued to wait on his employer, an eccentric composer who spends hour after hour isolated in his room. Morning, noon, and evening, the servant delivers appealing meals to the composer and returns later to find bowls and platters largely largely untouched. Once again, he steels himself to go through the same routine. As he swings open the door to the composer's room, the servant stops in his tracks. The startled composer's tears streaming down his the startled composer tears streaming down his face turns to his servant and cries, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. Well, that composer was Frederick, or George Frederick Handel, and he just finished writing the Hallelujah Chorus. Now let me give just a little bit more background to that uh, event. Handel was born in 1685. He was a contemporary of Bach, fellow German, and he was raised a Lutheran, just the way Bach had been. They never met one another, but it was soon evident that Handel was a gifted musician and composer. He had some initial success in writing operas and and other musical works. But later on, he met with financial disaster as rival opera companies uh, competed for ticket uh, holders in London. In 1737, Handel's opera company went bankrupt and he suffered a mild stroke. To make matters worse, his latest musical fascination, the oratorio, which was a composition of orchestra and voices telling a sacred story without costumes or scenery or dramatic action, uh, that the oratorio was uh, not well received. His first oratorio, Esther, the first of its kind in English, outraged the church. A Bible story was being told by common murmurers 
and even worse, the words of God were being spoken in the theater. The Bishop of London prohibited the oratorio from being performed. Handel proceeded anyway. In 1739, advertisements for his next oratorio, um, Israel and Egypt, were torn down by devout Christians who also disrupted his performances. Handel, a devout Lutheran, was not pleased, saying that he knew more about the Bible than the bishop did. <laughs> well, that didn't do him any good, and he actually thought he was just about ready to be thrown into debtor's prison because he was in such dire financial straits. On April 8th of that year, he gave what he considered to be his farewell concert, farewell concert. Miserably discouraged, he felt forced to retire from public activities at the age of 56. Then two unforeseen events converged to change his life. A wealthy friend, Charles Jennings, gave Handel a libretto about the life of Christ and the work of redemption to challenge what he thought were the deistic tendencies of that day. He thought, if I, this, this friend of his, thought if I write about the work of Christ, take it from the Bible, and Handel sets it to music, maybe it'll do some good against the, this new upsurge of deism. Uh, the text was taken completely from the Bible. So he asked Handel if he would compose the music. The musician agreed, estimating that it would take a year to complete. But when a group of Dublin charities offered Handel a generous commission to compose a new work for a benefit performance to free men from debtor's prison, Handel didn't waste any time. He knew, I mean, he had thought, I'm just about ready to go over there myself. And he thought, this is a good, good thing to, to, uh, <coughs> to do. So he started in on writing this oratorio. On August 22nd, 1741, he began to compose Messiah. Now, I usually, in the past, I've always said the Messiah, but I found out the proper way is to just say Messiah. He didn't composed the Messiah, he composed Messiah. I'll probably say it wrong when I'm going through this, but that's uh, anyway what, the, uh, what it said in the uh, things that I read. Now, <clears throat> he completed 260 pages. That's how long the oratorio was, 260 pages of written music. He completed that in a remarkably short time of 24 days. So that's pretty amazing if you think about it. 260 pages, some of the most beautiful and stirring music that's ever written was composed in 24 days. He never left his house for those three weeks. A friend who visited him as he composed found him sobbing with intense, intense emotion. Later, Handel groped, groped for words to describe what he experienced. So he quoted the Apostle Paul saying, whether I was in the body or out of the body, when I wrote, I do not know. Well, it premiered on April 13, 1742, as a charitable benefit, raising 400 pounds 
and setting free 142 men from debtor's prison. A year later, Handel staged it in London. Of course, that was he was still not well received by the Church of England for what he was doing. Yet, the King of England attended the performance. As the first notes of the triumphant hallelujah, hallelujah chorus rang out, the king rose. Following royal protocol, the entire audience stood up, initiating a tradition that has lasted more than two centuries. Soon after this, Handel's notoriety began to increase dramatically, and his hard-won popularity remained constant until his death. By the end of his life, Messiah was firmly established in the standard repertoire. Its influence on other composers would be extraordinary. When Haydn later heard the Hallelujah Chorus, he wept like a child and exclaimed, He is the master of us all. Of course, he was speaking about, uh, I think he was speaking about Handel. He should have been speaking about Christ. <laughs> but uh, anyway... That's what Haydn said about the Hallelujah Chorus. Handel personally conducted more than 30 performances of the Messiah. Many of these concerts were benefits for the Foundling Hospital, of which Handel was a major benefactor. Thousands of pounds that uh, the thousands of pounds that Handel's performance of Messiah raised uh, for charity led one. Bi biographer to note, Messiah has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, and fostered the orphan. Another wrote, perhaps the work of no other composer have so largely contributed to the relief of human suffering. His death on April 14, 1759, came only eight days after his final performance of Messiah. So, that's a, a brief account, anyway, of one, just one uh, example of, of uh, God using his people to bring forth music in this world and some of the effect that it had. Well, uh, I'm going to stop there. Because if I go on, I, I wouldn't know, know a good place to stop, and we've got a lot more. So uh, we'll pick up there next time. But God still has his Levitical musicians in the temple, except now they're called Christians. And they are doing what those Levitical um, singers were to do. They were singing day and night. And so that's, it. it's uh, something to trace it through church history, and that's what I've just begun to do here, and we'll go on with that the next time.
You better sing. Someone have a song or hymn or a spiritual song? What page? 52 in the Redemption. <clears throat> 